Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Bing. Only Bing brings together the best of search with Facebook and Twitter. Try it today at bing.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 13, titled Capturing the Past, wherein we discuss pop culture's anachronistic recreations of times gone by. Yo, Mikey. Hey, Bob. How's it going? Splendid, thank you, as always. How about your own self? Good, 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 good. Before we get to this week's episode, let's talk a little anadiplosis. Oh, yeah, I saw some lawyer ads for that uh, about 3 o'clock in the morning on cable. (laughs) You know, I suggest you join the class action. It's a disease, right? I was hoping you'd ask. A while back, we mentioned that several people had used a rhetorical device in their review of Lexicon Valley on iTunes. Some people used litotes, which is a kind of understatement. Somebody used polyptoton, which we decided, I think, was also a medical condition. I guess a lot of rhetorical terms sound like diseases or something. (laughs) Yeah. A couple of people over the last week or two used something called anadiplosis. Any guesses what that is? Well, you know, I'm still sticking with parasite. (laughs) It sounds like something you get, you know, working on brake linings or walking barefoot in the Ganges. It's a condition. Well, it comes from a Greek root meaning to double back. And Taylor Schreiner wrote on iTunes a few days ago, I'm completely addicted, addicted to listening to the podcasts. The podcasts are fantastically informative. Informative and engaging is how I would describe them. It's almost a round, you know, like in music where, with multiple uh, voices and the lyrics overlap. It's not even that complicated. You just take the last word or phrase in the previous sentence and make it the first in the next. So Donovan Klieg wrote on iTunes, Lexicon Valley is a great introduction to metalexicography. Metalexicography sets you free. Free is great when you can get it. And one of my favorite examples of anadiplosis in popular culture is from the song Packard Goose. And I'm going to guess that you're not a Frank Zappa fan. I'm not a not Frank Zappa fan. Uh, I once kind of did business with Frank Zappa, believe it or not. Really? We were working together on a TV show briefly before he died, or as the whole rest of the world seems to want to say, passed away. Uh, Yeah, so uh, I was a sort of a fan. Well, this is from the song Packard Goose off of his album, Joe's Garage. Well, information is not knowledge. Knowledge is not wisdom. Wisdom is not truth. Truth is not beauty. Beauty is not love. Love is not music. Music is the best. Best endometriosis I've heard today. (laughs) All right. I have one more example from pop culture, only I'm going to try to do an impression of this one. See if you can guess who this is. All right. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. 
<laughs> okay, I've got it narrowed down to that character in Star Wars and Elmo. <laughs> that good, huh? <laughs> Fantastic. Here's the real Yoda in episode one of Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. All right, today's episode. Uh, I think I've asked you this before, Bob, and if I remember, you've never seen the television show Downton Abbey. That's right. I'm way too busy criticizing media to consume any. (laughs) That must make you a great critic then. Downton Abbey is a British series, a kind of upstairs-downstairs costume drama set in the 19-teens about a wealthy aristocratic family and the many servants who work at their estate called Downton Abbey. And superficially, it's a soap opera, really, but one that uses the characters, and there's a whole Dickensian array of characters, as a way to depict the shifting social and political climate, much like Dickens did. Like any good period piece, it tries to be true to the times, right? Tries to be as accurate as possible. And over the past six months or so, a number of lexicographers have pointed out various linguistic anachronisms in Downton Abbey. So, for example, Ben Zimmer, the language columnist for the Boston Globe, pointed out that the phrase, I'm just saying, is far too modern to realistically come from someone in 1915 or so, as it did in Downton Abbey. Uh, A servant named Thomas Barrow said at one point, I am fed up seeing our lot get shafted. The Daily Mail in Britain quotes a guy from the Oxford English Dictionary as saying, I did think shafted felt quite wrong. Of course, it was. Shafted in that meaning doesn't show up until the 1950s, it turns out. It's interesting they should choose that because there was, I believe, an Edwardian term that would have you know, fit in there right nicely. I won't repeat it because it's a bit vulgar that is essentially synonymous with the anachronistic term they chose. Since when does vulgarity stop you from speaking? <laughs> I decline to answer that question on the grounds that it you know, might humiliate me. <laughs> so various people were listening for phrases that sounded quite wrong as the OED guy said, and investigating. But a guy named Benjamin Schmidt, who's a visiting graduate fellow at Harvard's Cultural Observatory, decided to do something a little different. To do what Ben Zimmer and those people did, you have to have a really fine-tuned ear for language, and you have to know the history of all of these different phrases in order to know that something doesn't quite sound right in 1917 or doesn't quite sound right in 1960. In general, I don't know that. But what we do have now are all these digitized databases of texts that include billions of words that have been written from all of the books that have been kept in libraries. So I took all of the phrases that appear in Downton Abbey and ran them through a database. And when you say every phrase in Downton Abbey, you mean every single phrase. Yeah, that's right. There are about 3,000 two-word phrases that appear in each episode of Downton Abbey. And using this computer program that I wrote, I could just check all of them for any particular episode in about a minute or two. And so that, of course, yields a whole lot more trackable data than simply, you know, picking and choosing this or that phrase. Yeah, it yields trackable data. And also it yields data on stuff that 
maybe nobody knows that the language has changed in that particular way, which in some ways it doesn't matter as much. It doesn't make the TV show worse if nobody knows that it's a change. But since I'm a grad student in history, I really care about finding historical changes that we've missed. In some ways, it's much more interesting because suddenly we get all these new changes to investigate. So while other linguists are walk into the, the room and they scan for pieces of evidence of anachronism, what this software enables your guy to do is kind of dust for prints, prints that might not necessarily be obvious to the naked eye. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. The Cultural Observatory at Harvard is a group that worked to develop this searchable database of around 5 million or so of the books that Google has scanned. So, for example, a character in Downton Abbey escapes the World War I draft because it's determined that he has a pansystolic murmur. Of course, that condition existed in 1917, but it wasn't called that until much later. I know what it was called in 1917. What's that? Anadiplosis. <laughs> you know, words change meaning over time. Uh-huh. So the program that Ben Schmidt wrote shows that that phrase appears in the database in works that were published in the 1950s, but not earlier. That phrase is entirely anachronistic. Then there are idioms or expressions that pop up in Downton Abbey that are unlikely to have been said at that time. So, for example, at long last, from scratch, act fast. Those are all at least 10 times more common in the late 20th century Hmm. than they are in the early 20th century. At long last. Mm -hmm. At long last. That surprises me. Yeah, and so to hear all three of those phrases and others as well in the course of a single week or month or finite time period at Downton Abbey is unrealistic. So it's the equivalent of having them wear the wrong kind of shoes for the period or something like that. Yeah, which is far less likely because we have really good photos of that time. And so we can accurately recreate the dress, but not so with language. And of course, there are phrases and constructions that Downton Abbey gets right. Phrases like jolly well and old chap and civilized world sound like cliches of that time period. But in fact, Schmidt shows that those phrases were all at least six times more common in Britain in the 19-teens than they are today. And so, in fact, it's realistic that they would be used. Although, strangely, I, I when I hear them... I would say, gosh, do they really say jolly well like that? It seems like such a stereotype. I wonder if that was really typical speech. You know, like I said, it sounds like a cliche. And if you look in the database of books that Google has scanned, those phrases are all used quite often compared to today. Now, this sort of holistic approach by Schmidt analyzing every line of dialogue reveals some fascinating patterns And this is what I think is most interesting about his observations. These patterns suggest areas in which we're good at capturing language and areas in which we're not. Turns out we're not so good at accurately depicting language that comes up around war. For example, the black market is a phrase that was a World War II invention. Nobody ever uses the phrase black market to refer to selling goods until the 1940s in 
the United States and in England. Not only does the word appear for the first time then in English, but also in the 1940s, you get these words in other languages that are exactly the same. You get Mercado Negro in Spanish and Schwarzmarkt in German, and they all emerge during World War II at the same time because you need to talk about selling goods outside of government-established rationing systems. And then there's a term like wartime marriage, which uses wartime as an adjective. That was also unlikely to have happened in World War I. Yeah, because only, I think, in World War II possibly did people come to think that there were two distinct sorts of periods you could live in, wartime and peacetime. During World War I, there was this great war, and it was a complete anomaly. It wasn't that they had entered a period of wartime and they were going back to peacetime. But by World War II, it seems like they needed much more to talk about how now we're in wartime, then we were in peacetime, now we're in wartime again. And something like a wartime marriage started to have a greater meaning and started to be something that people really needed to express. Now, I want to play for you a short clip from Downton Abbey. See if you can identify in here a linguistic construction that might have been unlikely in the early 20th century. You don't think she'd be happier with a more traditional setup? Will she have the option? So my job is to guess what doesn't belong in that picture? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll go with setup. That would have been my guess too, probably. Here's Ben Schmidt. I was not expecting this to throw an alarm in the script that I wrote, but actually more traditional turns out to be a phrase which is used vastly more frequently today than it was around 1920. As you say on your website, it turns out that saying more traditional is a very untraditional way of expressing that. Yeah, exactly. Even the idea of tradition is in some ways fairly new. But talking about things being more traditional or less traditional seems to be even newer than that. It seems to be something that really starts in the 1930s, 1940s, the 1950s. And that sort of makes sense if you think about it, because if something's actually traditional, it's just traditional or it's not. It's like being more kosher or less kosher. Either it meets the requirements of tradition or it doesn't. And so for somebody who's landed gentry the way that the Earl of Grantham is, who is the embodiment of this British noble tradition, to be sort of taking from it piecemeal the way that we might nowadays, turns out, I think, to be really sort of dishonest to what it was actually like to be a living representative of that tradition back then. So there's no spectrum of tradition It either is traditional or it ain't. Yeah, and in fact, Schmidt found that one thing that really trips us up is in assuming that the way we talk about the past is the way people always talked about the past. So Schmidt also ran the scripts for Mad Men, another period drama, this one set in the 60s. Using his algorithm, he found that characters sometimes use the phrase back then to refer to a time gone by. But if you look at the data, back then was relatively rare in the 1960s. It didn't take off until the late 1970s and has exploded since then. You know, I can almost hear it in song lyrics from the 30s. So uh, I guess I can't. I guess I'm imagining that. Back then existed in the 1960s, and it existed, I think, for decades before that. It just was rare. Well, Schmidt got me. This is a show that I do watch, and I, (laughs) probably predictably, sit there on the lookout for various kinds of chronology errors, but the term back then just went right past me. 
as did, I'm sure, many other terms that come up in Mad Men. Tell me, tell me, tell me. I will tell you. But let's first take a short break and mention our sponsor, Bing.com. Everybody uses search. We've been using it for years. It's revolutionary, but it doesn't really do a good job at giving you opinions or recommendations. It turns out that 90% of us seek advice from our friends before we do stuff like make a restaurant reservation or book a vacation or buy electronics, which makes sense. We want to know what the people we trust think. Searching on Bing now taps the wisdom of your crowd. The friends that you have on Facebook, on Twitter, on Foursquare, Bing has been redesigned to make it easy to get information that you need from people in your social networks. See for yourself, bing.com. Now, something that Schmidt's data shows is not just areas in which we're bad at capturing the language of the past, but some areas in which we're actually pretty good. It turns out that the language of technology is something that we tend to get right, with one exception that proves the rule. That's language around the use of the phone, possibly because, like I don't know, like war, the phone seems to us like one of those eternal entities. And so we don't imagine that the language we use to describe the way we deal with the phone has changed. For example. Two episodes ago, Roger Sterling said that they couldn't leave the representative from Jaguar on hold. It turns out, looking at this huge database of text, that people almost never said on hold back then. There were hold buttons on phones, but the only way that they used the word hold was to say, could you hold the line, please? People hadn't been spending so much time on hold. The hold button wasn't so ingrained in popular consciousness that there was this idea of this state that somebody could be in, which was being on hold. <laughs> that doesn't seem to really emerge until the 1970s. It's just a function of the machine that hasn't yet been sort of naturalized into this social convention, the social state. And of course, it's now used much more broadly and metaphorically. Exactly. And... That's an emergence which probably comes even later. It's a little bit harder to check in these databases, but it's the sort of thing that we're starting to be able to do. Got me again. More. More. (laughs) You love this. Yeah, I do. There's an episode of Mad Men in which the office gets a Xerox machine for the first time, and it's a big deal. And nothing about the way they talk about it jumps out in the data as strikingly anachronistic. So again, they're pretty good at getting technology right, But then when somebody gets on the phone again, something does jump out. I just got off the line with X. This appears so often in the show, but it appears almost never in the actual printed texts from the era. Sometimes they're starting to say, try to get X on the line, try to get Lee Garner on the line. But again, it's about this state of talking on the phone where you wouldn't necessarily think I was on the line with him, now I'm off the line with him. I must say that does not square with my fairly vague recollections of the era. I was a kid, but I was, you know, a sentient being. And I seem to remember that being a uh, sort of standard uh, terminology in 1964, 65. You know, at about the same time when people would say, I'm expecting a long distance call, (laughs) which was, you know, an event. That was still being said in, you know, the 80s and 90s, probably. Yeah, I guess so. Well, I wasn't alive in the 1960s, so here I'm at the disadvantage. I can't evaluate whether or not that phrase was in fact said. But 
I'll get in a little while to this idea of how we may misremember what was accurate terminology from a prior time. First, I want to talk about another area in which Mad Men does really well, and that's in the language around social change and sexual politics. There's nothing really that jumps out in Schmidt's data, nothing that he could recall anyway, where the show made a glaring kind of anachronistic error. But incidentally, he ran some scripts for the very short-lived ABC show Pan Am, which tried to capitalize on this Mad Men 60s-era glamour nostalgia, but failed, I think. I've never seen the show. Failed because it was probably terrible. But one of the funnier out-of-time phrases that Schmidt's algorithm spit out was Ice Princess. Here's Schmidt. There's something that's very particularly post-feminist about that idea that that's actually really threatening. There's not a big danger to women being aloof. That doesn't create a huge threat to a man in the 1950s. It's only as part of a backlash against feminism that you would get people starting to use that as a widespread term of derision. And that is what we find in the literature. So it's a really sort of telling and fundamental mistake for a show like Pan Am not to be sensitive to that, because Pan Am, like Mad Men, is about shifting sexual politics. And if you're using a term like Ice Princess to refer to women, that shows that you don't really get how the relations between men and women changed over the 1960s and the 1970s as feminism became more and more widespread. So the language around technology, social change, with the exception of the phone, is consistently time-appropriate in Mad Men, unlike the language of business, which the show consistently gets wrong and inserts phrases that are far too modern for the time. Well, this is doubly shocking for me, Mike, because uh, I'm well-informed on the history of advertising and the agency business in the 60s, and you know, I thought I knew the, the jargon pretty well. I would go so far as to say I would imagine I'm an expert in this subject. And I have seldom winced at any kind of terminology that comes from the character's mouth. So this is going to be really ugly for me in the next minute, <laughs> I'm suspecting. Prepare to wince. Uh. So there are all these terms like deal breaker, which doesn't appear until the 1970s, using to leverage as a verb using phrases like level the playing field or having Don Draper get a signing bonus or telling somebody to keep a low profile at a meeting. None of those were phrases that were used in any significant rate in the early 1960s. And some of them, that's actually really sort of culturally significant. Leverage is my favorite example on this one because nowadays investment bankers, hedge fund guys, that's sort of the highest glamour point in American business. And the language of high finance trickles down into sort of all of our common vocabularies all the time. But back in the 1960s, finance banking was not a particularly glamorous sector. And in fact, the most glamorous sector was advertising. That's why the show is set in the advertising agencies. But having them using all of this language from the 1970s and the 1980s, when we moved from the sort of consumer capitalism towards more financial capitalism more recently, doesn't really get the business environment right. Aha, finally, he mentions a, uh, a term that uh, I did recognize as having been out of place. What's that? And that is 
leverage, which is my continues to be a bet noir for me because I, in the modern era, it comes out of the mouth of advertising people about every six and a half seconds when they mean to say take advantage of or exploit. They say leverage, and it just it makes me cringe. So okay, huh? Huh? Maybe you did then wince when you saw that episode. You just don't remember it because you know you're wincing so often for other reasons. Yeah, that's one of the symptoms actually of uh, anadiplosis. <laughs> Who, by the way, was my prom date in 1973? <laughs> What's she up to now? Oh, the diplosis family was so nice, but they had such a tragedy. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. So I mentioned before that we might misremember what terms were appropriate in the past. Schmidt, as part of his dissertation, Unrelated to Mad Men, does research on the advertising industry in the 1940s and 50s. So he's a bit of an expert as well at this point. And when his algorithm suggested that focus group, which is used in Mad Men, was anachronistic, he thought that must be a mistake because he was sure that he had seen the term focus group in these obscure trade magazines that he had hard copies of and were not in his database. So he went back to the magazines to check and prove his algorithm wrong. And in fact, he found the phrase focused interview, focused group interview, but he couldn't find anywhere in these magazines from the 40s and 50s focus group as its own standalone noun phrase. He probably would have had to look at the trade publications beginning in the mid to late 70s to locate it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, in fact, when it starts to show up, I think, in the database. And so it may be that this sloppiness with regard to business language, more so than in other areas, is particular to our time. Or maybe there's something universal going on here. Schmidt found an interesting piece of evidence. He put the full text of Edith Wharton's novel, The Age of Innocence, through his algorithm. The Age of Innocence was written around 1920 and is set in the 1870s. In other words, it's purporting to capture the way things were a half century earlier, just like Mad Men. And the database shows an apparent anachronism in the following sentence. Dr. Carver is a very clever man. He wants a rich wife to finance his plans, and Medora is simply a good advertisement as a convert. So Edith Wharton pulled a Matthew Weiner, huh? One man's uh, leverage is another woman's finance. Yeah, exactly. To finance as a verb used colloquially in this way didn't emerge until later, the 1880s and 1890s, I think really for sure. Edith Wharton in the 1920s wouldn't have necessarily known that. So why would we be so careful with the language of technology and social change and get that right more often than not, but not business? I guess because we tend to fairly accurately recall technological advances as having a certain place in time, right? We know roughly how old we were when TVs became portable or the transistor radio was developed or the Apple IIe came out. And it's easy to guard against anachronistic speech, I guess. Yeah, I think you're right. And in fact, Schmidt has a theory that's sort of along those lines. Here it is. We have these really strong ingrained narratives of progress and technology. The technology is always advancing. And that helps us remember that technology is always really deeply historical. 
And we have that same idea for race relations and for gender relations, that we're on this upward slant and it may be interrupted and it may go from side to side, but that one of the things that's really defining about 20th century America is that we have had a really progressive, forward-moving narrative about social change. And for the most part, we don't have that about business. In fact, we tend to think that a lot of business language is eternal, and a lot of the ways that our culture talks about business is that they're sort of eternal facts of capitalism or eternal facts about the ways that corporations work that makes it really hard to realize that, in fact, business organization, business language changed dramatically in the last 50 years. Ben Zimmer pointed out that CFO, chief financial officer, is used at one point in Mad Men. But in fact, businesses didn't even have CFOs until the early 1970s that they called CFOs. I think it would have been even more jarring if they had referred to the chief privacy officer. Yes, exactly. Or their IT guy. At least they don't have an IT guy. I suppose the chief financial officer would have been called the uh, the treasurer or maybe the comptroller. I still don't know what a comptroller is. <laughs> I'm not even sure how to pronounce that word. <laughs> well, they're also called controllers, but they essentially are in charge of uh, auditing the books, I think, making sure the money's going in the right place. You mentioned progress in society that we do have a pretty good timeline on. I noticed that Black people in Mad Men are are referred to as Negroes, which is supposed to sound jarring, but was very much the uh, terminology of the day. And if they said African-American or even black in the episodes that take place in 1964, that would make you flinch. That would be entirely incongruous. And of course, they don't make those mistakes, right? I mean, there's no fax machine in Mad Men. This timeline that we have for technology and for social change is very deeply ingrained in our consciousness. Still, it shocks me that uh, no one was ever told to keep a low profile in a meeting. That just seems as timeless as can be. Well, maybe they had some other way of expressing that idea. Like with a lot of these things, it's not that the sentiment didn't exist. It's just that the words we use to describe that sentiment were different. Maybe they said, I don't know, jolly chap, stay (laughs) hidden. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure that's exactly what they said. <laughs> it, it, it strikes a false note, you think? <laughs> no, no, I think you just totally nailed it. Better than I nailed Yoda? Yeah, even better. I thought so. So what is maybe my favorite of all of Schmidt's observations is one that I think without this database and without his algorithm, he never would have caught. He never would have guessed because it's a nuanced shift in the language in a place that the average person wouldn't ever think to even look. And this is an observation that I think more than anyone that I've made may ruin my ability to watch historical television shows because it turns out that every show set in the past uses the word need to all the time, whether it's Downton Abbey or Mad Men or Pan Am or a whole score of movies. But people don't say, I need to very much in the early 20th century. Do they not need to do things, or do they just say it differently? So there's a whole slew of words that you can use that are sort of a spectrum. You could say, I ought to do that. You could say, I must do that. You could say, I have to do that. You could say, I need to do that. And what seems to have happened in the language over the last 100 years and over the last 50 years since Mad Men's time is 
that we've really shifted from saying I ought to and talking about social obligations that we have and talking about the tasks that have to be done as shared endeavors and shifted more and more to making them all about yourself and your personal desires. And that's why I think it's a problem for madmen, because Don Draper comes from the silent generation, this milieu in which you do not make things about yourself. And that's, in fact, the defining trait of Don Draper's character, is it's about how men like Don Draper used to be more reticent and they used to have their secrets. I don't think a guy like Don Draper would have said, I need to talk to him. I'm sorry, Mike. I need to gather myself. (laughs) You need to or you ought to? I ought to. You know, this guy, he's not only dusting for prints, he's dusting for prints behind the radiator. And and yet he's coming up with them. What he determined was that if you look in the database for the three-word phrases, I need to and I ought to, I ought to starts high and comes down, and I need to does the opposite, and they intersect around 1986 or so. And in fact, he ran the scripts for a whole bunch of movies and television shows from the 1960s. The Apartment with Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon, fantastic movie, Lilies of the Field, a number of Twilight Zone episodes. And in every single one of those scripts that he ran, ought to was more common than need to. Then he ran a series of movies from the 2000s that were set in the 1960s. And this included Mad Men. It also included The Playboy Club, which was another short-lived series. I think that's probably off the air now. Pan Am, X-Men First Class, and some others. And in every one of those movies and shows, need to was more common, far more common than ought to. So really, if you know, you're making a movie about the 60s now, one thing you should probably do is go back and watch some movies that were made in the 1960s to get a better sense of how people actually talked. Okay, fair enough. But uh, Schmidt, in his research, is using all of these countless millions of books, which are, of course, written speech. Written speech reflecting spoken language, but nonetheless written Is he sure that they are a fair representation of contemporaneous language for the times in which the various books were written? That occurred to me, and it occurred to him. He's done a few things so far to convince himself that that's the case. First, he ran some scripts from early 20th century plays and radio shows to determine whether or not the dialogue in those would map closely to books from that time period. And they did. He did the same thing with movie scripts from the 60s, some of those same movies that we talked about earlier, The Apartment, Lilies of the Field, and a number of other movies from the 60s, and he found a similar close mapping to books from that time. But that's still written material for the most part, right? It's not candid, off-the-cuff dialogue which is really hard to get, right? Recordings from the 1960s, who has those? And it's even harder to get transcripts of that stuff. But there is one such body of work. Can you guess what that might be? The congressional record? Am I warm? You're actually really warm. I mean, the congressional record is probably not quite as conversational as he was looking for, but you might remember that Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon recorded many, many hours 
in the White House of meetings and conversations with them and their aides. A lot of that stuff has been transcribed. He took all of it and ran it through his algorithm and checked it against the database. And those conversations map very closely to the printed material from that time. So he feels pretty good that the database is large enough that it does approximate the way people would have used language in that time, with the exception of one category of words that he's had to, in fact, take out of his data set. And those are swear words, right? I mean, people from the early 20th century and people in the 1960s cursed maybe as much as we do now, but they didn't print it very much. So if we want to know whether the profanity in Downton Abbey is historically accurate, uh, we're shit out of luck. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'll say 1960 for that one i'll have to check the database all right you can contact us at slate lexicon valley at gmail.com that's slate lexicon valley at gmail.com you can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexicon valley please subscribe to our feed in itunes where you can leave a review that has a rhetorical device in it and maybe we'll talk about it on the next show i want to thank ben schmidt he is a visiting fellow at harvard's cultural observatory and a phd candidate at princeton and andy bowers the executive producer of slate's podcasts okay mikey we done we're done all right man later gator later